Scientists like me think these hormone twins are also appetite suppressors. So to some degree, when you're taking these medications, not so much by their action on insulin, but probably more so on their action with glucagon and then another hormone called ghrelin. Ghrelin is kind of like growling, right? So ghrelin is affected at the stomach because they, they induce sort of ghrelin activity so your stomach feels like it's fuller faster. One of the side effects of these drugs is that you'll often feel kind of full early and a little bit of nausea and some other, and we'll get deeper into the, the, the side effects. But it basically makes you feel full faster so you don't want to eat as much. So you're less hungry, you eat less, and so therefore lose weight. Welcome to the Menopause Mastery Podcast, a show for women just like you who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, living life with a purpose. I created this show because I knew that women just like me in this second season of life, the season of menopause, are really tapping into their deepest desires. And we're ready to harness our physical and mental health and explore what our true passions are and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what we want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking the complex science and making it easier to integrate into daily life. So let's join the journey to make this season the best ever. Welcome back to Menopause Mastery. So I am back today by myself doing a little bit of what I like to call uh, brain candy, which is just diving into the science and getting a little deeper in. I had so many juicy interviews that were scheduled over the last couple of months. Um, I just, we just brought all of those out to you so you would have them. But, you know, I did an a interview with Dr. Amy, Amy Horneman on the um, Thyroid Fixer podcast about two months ago so it was right at the end of may and it was so good because it was about semaglutide otherwise known as ozempic and wagovi and terazepatide and and it's in the trade name manjaro uh with dr amy and it was actually a very um interesting conversation because she and i didn't necessarily agree across the board on on the medications and the application of them but I had so many questions that came up on social media afterwards and, um, you know, people messaging me on the website. And so I wanted to go back and just give a little more scientific detail or at least credence to why I have uh, reservations about these medications to be used for weight loss, particularly in somebody who isn't looking at needing to lose 60, 70 pounds um, that maybe has been struggling for a long time because I, they are being kind of abused and used in ways that they weren't designed to do and there is some potential drawbacks. And I want to just explain how they work because, you know, these drugs have been around in diabetes for a long time, which is a chronic disease that leads to, you know, cardiovascular disease, early death, early amputation. It's a horrible disease. And it's one thing to look at the risk profile of a medication that is playing into treating a, a disease state that is so horribly um, not only disfiguring because of amputations and things like that, but, but, but greater morbidity and mortality at an earlier age, which means that the critical value of using that medication becomes higher than if we're looking at obesity in itself. Yes, obesity drives. Um, drives diseases, but there are people that are overweight and obese that are not specifically diagnosed with diseases. Um, so it is different. And so today I'm going to deep dive into it. So if you've been considering these drugs or if you've taken them and you're like, I don't know, 
or you're just really curious about them and want to know more, I'm digging in today. And we're going to talk about it particularly around a woman's hormones and um, what else you need to know if you're perimenopausal and menopausal. Um, so first off, we're going to get a little nerdy, right? So it's pretty fascinating. All right. So first off, um, Wagovi or Ozempic are trade names for a compound called semiglutide. And semiglutide is a GLP-1 drug. And what this stands for is glucagon-like peptide. And it's born in our gut when we eat, right? So when you eat, GLP-1 is stimulated. This little hero helps keep our blood sugar in check by doing two big things. It tells our pancreas to produce insulin, which you know is uh, like the sugar police, and it sort of picks up insulin, and, or insulin picks up sugar and takes it to our cell to, to basically get burned. And two, it tells our liver to cool it with glucagon, right? So it says, hey, calm down, glucagon. We don't need to do that. Glucagon is the hormone that is the opposite of insulin, and it actually increases blood sugar by telling the liver to manufacture sugar out of non-carbohydrate sources, specifically proteins, right? So it takes amino acids out of your proteins like muscle tissue or the proteins that you ate, and it specifically takes them to a lever and manufactures them. And the majority of your amino acids, things like glycine, things like tryptophan, you know, your branch chain amino acids are fuel to be made into glucose at the liver, right? So GLP-1 is like a blood sugar regulator. So it, it basically tells the pancreas to produce more insulin and then slows the um, production of glucagon at the liver. Now, there is also a GIP, which stands for glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide. Um, that's a lot, right? So like GLP-1, GIP comes to life in the gut. And when we eat, it's a good guy. So it signals to the pancreas to release insulin and help our body manage blood sugars. And that, the GIP-1, is going to be your terzepatide or your monjoro. Now, these hormones are obviously really, really helpful for somebody with diabetes, right? Type 2, because they're having a hard time managing their blood sugars. So often their blood sugars are higher, right? So if I produce insulin at the pancreas, it's going to lower that fasting blood sugar and or that post-eating, particularly the post-eating blood sugar, what's called postprandial. You know, um, so drugs like semaglutide or terzepatide mimic these hormones and help with modulating that blood sugar amount, but they can also cause weight loss, right? Now, scientists like me think these hormone twins are also appetite suppressors. So to some degree, when you're taking these medications, not so much by their action on insulin, but probably more so on their action with glucagon and then another hormone called ghrelin. Ghrelin is kind of like growling, right? So ghrelin is affected at the stomach because they, they induce sort of ghrelin activity so your stomach feels like it's fuller faster. One of the side effects of these drugs is that you'll often feel kind of full early and a little bit of nausea and some other, and we'll get deeper into the, the, the side effects. But it basically makes you feel full faster Faster, so you don't want to eat as much. So you're less hungry, you eat less, and so therefore lose weight. It's kind of like a diet plan sort of being built in. So your body's kind of like already not interested in foods. So 
These drugs were originally designed for diabetes by pushing the body to make more insulin and slowing down glucagon so you make less glucose at the liver. Because that in type 2 diabetes is happening. Basically, you have glucose being shuttled by insulin and you have the liver overproducing glucose, which makes your glucose rise. That's why your glucose will get high in the morning while you're sleeping is because glucagon at the liver is tearing down muscle tissue and making glucose for you because the blood sugar drops in the middle of the night, which means that now you can't control your blood sugar over the course of fasting overnight, and you were not burning fat while you were sleeping, which is when we burn fat, right? So this gets completely dysregulated in type 2 diabetes, but we also see it in obesity. So, so traditionally, we use these drugs like that. So here's where things like GLP-1 drugs like semaglutide and terzepatide really work. They give insulin a little kick in the pants, right? So they help the beta cells in the pancreas produce more insulin and that lowers the blood sugar, right? Now, what do we know about insulin resistance? It's because insulin's high, right? So there's a little bit of drawback about that, right? You know, it's, it's if insulin keeps getting higher, is that a problem? It is a problem, particularly when glucagon is also at play, right? Because we don't want both of these basically basically active at the same time because again that's part of the metabolic damage that we see in type 2 diabetes right so so it causes weight loss so semaglutide ozempic wagovi um we've used that in diabetes since 2017 um and then of course they found that it was um pretty effective at at least basic slow weight loss um, in diabetic patients. And if you get it as Wagovi or um, Ozempic, and Wagovi is the one, the brand name for the diet drug, which is a higher dose, right? Um, It comes in a little pen, right? A little pen that you inject yourself with, or you get it compounded as semaglutide. It is incredibly expensive now because it's been very uh, popularized, and so it's uh, gone up in price accordingly. You know, the old economic rule holds true: is desire and um, and market forces will drive price, right? So the more people want it, the higher the price is going to go, not the higher production, right? Terzepatide and Monjoro, which are slightly different drugs, they are a GIP one superstar. Um, it's got a little bit of GLP one. Um, activity to it, but it's it more acts directly on insulin. Comes also in a preloaded pen. It was approved for type two diabetes, and and now really they're looking at it for um, weight loss. They haven't officially approved it for weight loss. So what are these hormones? What what do we call them? So they they are metabolic hormones that we call incretins, incretins, and they dis, they basically stimulate a decrease in the blood glucose levels by inducing the insulin response, and um, you see a secondary excretion of glucagon. Um, and they do that by telling the pancreatic beta cells, or otherwise known as the um, islets of Langerhan, to actually release insulin from those cells. And then they slow the rate of the carbohydrate content, basically leaving the gut. So they slow gastric emptying. So basically your stomach stays full longer. They slow the speed in which carbohydrates hit the bloodstream. So you see a reduction in blood sugar. And that also tends to reduce the appetite, does cause nausea and some discomfort. And often then you see a little bit of um, decrease in food intake. That um, gastric inhibitory polypeptide, GIP, right, um, is the other hormone. And and it's signaled from K-cells in the gut in response to food intake, it also stimulates 
K-cells in the gut, um, and it stimulates insulin secretion. But unlike GLP-1, it doesn't delay stomach emptying or suppress appetite. So, so if you have a drug that's just a GIP, it doesn't seem to have the same appetite suppression or delay stomach emptying, which means that your terzepatide and manjaro tend to have slightly less side effects than your semaglutide, right? Or Wagovi, Ozempic, um, because Wagovi and Ozempic, semaglutide really affect that gastric emptying. Um, so why is this so important, particularly to women? right? So if you've been listening to my podcast, you know that I am very, very interested in the intersection between estrogen and the changes in our sex hormone estrogen and insulin and glucagon. So estrogen obviously is our primary hormone, female hormone, and glucagon is obviously the one that's responsible for raising blood sugar when you're not consuming calories, right? Or glucagon is producing blood sugar out of non-carbohydrate material like your amino acids. And they're both crucial. So the big thing is, is you can't suppress either one of these. You can't suppress insulin. You can't suppress glucagon. And we need estrogen too. So these are all about when and how they're getting used and how they're being uh, manipulated through diet and lifestyle and other things. So some studies have shown that estrogen may play a role in glucose homeostasis or glucose balance by affecting the balance between insulin and glucagon. Right? These are the studies that I was really looking at because I just knew I would meet all these women in my clinic that were, um, were doing all the right things. They're eating low carb, they're you know, working out, they're eating their protein, they're getting plenty of fiber, drinking lots of water, and they would have this struggle on trying to lose weight. And this would usually occur as they hit their kind of menopausal and perimenopausal state as they were sort of moving through that transition. And so we're not 100% um, clear about what this mechanism is between estrogen and the changes of estrogen that we see in perimenopause and menopause and how it may play a role, but it could involve direct effects on the cells of the pancreas. So there's probably some estrogen receptor activity because there's estrogen receptors on all the cells of the body. There's estrogen receptors on the powerhouse, the mitochondria in cells, and there are probably different concentrations depending on the cell type. Um, but we don't have clear research on that yet. That's an area that I'm very, very interested in. And, and the, the influence it will have on both insulin and glucagon are going to affect body weight, our fat distribution, and even our inflammatory stuff. And what we do know is estrogen deficiency or kind of estrogen burnout that we get in menopause um, and postmenopausal women absolutely is associated with an increase in insulin resistance, right, where our cells aren't listening to insulin. And it basically is leading to an overproduction also of glucagon and then glucose at the liver, right? So your insulin isn't working properly anymore and glucagon is going to be elevated because you are postmenopausal. And again, this probably happens in our 40s and starts and continues as estrogen sort of wildly fluctuating, right? So this is going to stimulate an increase in that glucagon level, so you're going to produce more glucose. This is very much what I found in my research. I found it to be true for myself, and I found it to be true for the hundreds of women that have gone through the hormone reset program and have been able to sort of reset their metabolism because we could really get this insulin glucagon sensitivity back, right? So so the take-home message is these drugs, both of them work in the gut, they work on receptors in the gut that affect how glucose and carbohydrates from your foods get mobilized from the gut into the bloodstream, so they slow that down. 
They slow gastric emptying, particularly semaglutide, so you feel fuller longer. And then they, they tell the pancreas to make more insulin. And then semaglutide does influence glucagon production, so it reduces glucagon. And so those things are basically how it manipulates the blood sugar and also reduces weight gain and all induces weight loss, right? Now, the, the interesting thing about these drugs is they are, they are metabolized fairly quickly, right? So they're made in the gut, they do their action, and then they are gone very quickly. Our body has an enzyme called dipeptylpeptidase 4, which is a type of enzyme that works like, as a, like a little set of scissors, and they trim proteins off of foods and things like that in our gut. So for those of you who might be very interested in gluten sensitivity and those kind of things, you may have heard of this enzyme before. DPP4 or dipeptylpeptidase 4 is the enzyme responsible for breaking the ends off the gluten molecule and making it now not immune stimulating, which I'm going to go back to in a minute. So I always found it fascinating when that research came out. I'm like, okay, this enzyme, DPP4, um, that is responsible for breaking down gluten and lots of other hard-to-digest proteins, things like soy and dairy. Um, your casein also are manipulated by DPP-4. That this enzyme has also long been studied in diabetes. And there's other drugs like uh, Trulicity and things like that that actually work on this enzyme. Which I always, I remember being in a conference and talking to one of the researchers that, you know, standing up at a podium asking about the DPP-4 enzyme drugs like Trulicity. And I held up my hand and I said, what would happen if you're manipulating this drug in somebody who had celiac disease? Because again, celiac disease, they assumed was maybe a lack of DPP-4 enzymes. And there is some of that research, and you can buy enzymes like that. I mean, we, we sell those on our store. You can buy them over the counter. There were clinical trials on DPP-4 enzymes that would help raise that enzyme with the hopes that it would help somebody who was celiac maybe get small amounts of gluten or mitigate if they were cross-contaminated or, you know, what the drug companies really wanted to do was basically come up with a way that big food could continue to sell wheat to people and basically give a drug that would allow anybody to eat whatever they wanted. Well, those drugs didn't work out, right? They didn't work out and they had variable results that they couldn't consistently work across the board. So they can maybe help if you're getting exposed, but that doesn't allow somebody who's celiac to go hog wild and eat gluten. Right, So the take-home message is that DPP-4 enzyme, dipeptylpeptidase 4, is an enzyme that breaks down hard-to-digest immunostimulating enzyme, or, um, proteins or peptides like gluten and gliadin and casein, but it is also the enzyme that, um, that breaks down um, your GLP-1 and, and GIP. Right, so this enzyme is responsible for basically cleaning these up in our system. Um, so, it, it, so it cuts the protein, so it snips the proteins off the end of, of the, the um, gluten molecule, and it also sort of snips the ends off of this GLP-1, so you can't use it anymore. Um, so when we're looking at these inhibitors, right, so these DPP-4 inhibitors, I, I dug around in the research because obviously what we know is there are genetic variability between like my level of DPP-4 and my husband who can eat gluten, right? I can't because I have celiac and, and colitis, but he has obviously has more of this DPP enzyme, DPP-4. And so 
what's interesting about any drug is if we're putting a drug in like a Wagovi or semaglutide, and we have an enzyme that all of us produce, but we produce at different levels, that means that the effectiveness of the dose, the amount that's circulating, how quickly our body metabolizes it through enzymes like this is going to vary. You know, and there aren't a lot of studies looking at that DPP-4 enzyme level in disease states to begin with, other than trialing it in celiac patients. And they found that even, even patients with malabsorption syndrome, syndrome had reduced levels of DPP-4. So it's not just celiacs, right? So in somebody that maybe has reduced levels of DPP-4, this drug, semaglutide, is going to maybe act differently. Because again, we have genetic variability and our own variability in how we break these drugs down because everybody's body is a little bit different. And so there is some concern potentially about using these drugs even in celiac patients because A, it may change the effectiveness of the drug, but they already have potentially a less than stellar production of GPP-4. Um, so my first caveat with this is, you know, every one of these things that we stick in our body as a drug um, is kind of like taking a sledgehammer to a finishing nail. You know, it gets what it want, what we want done, done, because they're always looking at just one endpoint. And, and so, yes, it results in weight loss and it results in blood sugar control by making more insulin. But when we don't take into account what happens at how that drug is metabolized, specifically, we might be overlooking something. Now, in studies, just so I can be clear about this, there's three phases of clinical trials, and one of the phases is to identify efficacy and, and dose, you know, kind of your high-end dose, your low-end dose before you hit, like, toxicity, yes or no, and then it's safety, right, and then it's, it does it do what it needs to do in that very first study. So there is safety mechanisms, but they didn't go try it in, you know, a thousand celiac patients to see what would happen or a thousand people who had malabsorption syndrome to see what was really going on. So in, in most populations, it would probably operate the same as what in the trials, but in people that may have other conditions, it may not, right? So, so this is pretty interesting stuff. So the first thing is, is we have genetic variability in how our enzymes are produced that may break these drugs down and affect their half-life. And that may, that may even be part of the player why some people get more digestive symptoms. Because if we look at the research, the digestive symptoms were pretty significant, you know, depending on what study you looked at, somewhere between 27 and 42% of people had, you know, nausea, an uncomfortable feeling of fullness, digestive changes, you know, bowel changes and other things like that. Um, so, so there's quite a bit of side effects, right, that happen in the stomach and the digestive tract. All right. So let's compare those drugs, right? So let's compare the terzepatide, which is, um, which is Monjoro, relative to semaglutide at helping people lose weight, um, and particularly things at looking at like blood sugar control and hemoglobin A1C. So hemoglobin A1C is your average blood sugar, and it usually fluctuates from about 4.8 to about 5.6. And then when you start getting above that, you're in a pre-diabetic and diabetic range. Um, you know, so terzepatide shows that it actually out, outplays semaglutide, particularly around A1C levels, again, because it's working directly on insulin production, whereas, um, whereas your, your semaglutide affects both insulin and glucagon. 
Um, so if we were to rank those up together, I would say terzepatide is better if somebody has pre-diabetic and diabetic states for sure. Um, so, so you might think uh, about these drugs and go, well, it doesn't matter because I'm losing weight, right? Because again, a lot of us get it set to the scale and we say, well, gosh, if the scale moves, then that's what's important. However, it's important to understand whether we're losing fat or muscle, right? And this is something um, Amy and I got into a lot, so I'm not going to belabor the point. But weight loss and fat loss are two separate things. Weight loss is just a number changing on the scale. You went from 150 to 135. Fat loss is the loss of body fat because uh, five pounds of fat and five pounds of muscle weigh the same. But five pounds of fat takes up a lot more space on the body, right? So it's more voluminous, it's less dense than muscle, right? So if I have five pounds of muscle, it's going to take up less space. That means I'm going to have less jiggly bits on my body. Well, the truth is both of these drugs lead to a loss of lean muscle mass, right? So that means I'm losing muscle, mostly skeletal muscle. That's the muscle that moves your body, your legs, your hips, your buttocks, your abdominal muscles, not so much your little arm muscles. You'll lose a little bit of that, but it's really the big muscle groups. And, and so that's, that's problematic because when we are over 40 and particularly when we hit 50 and above and we aren't on hormone replacement, we lose, depending on the study, anywhere from one to 2% of our lean muscle mass every year just by the act of aging, unless we're actively working hard to keep it or gain it, right? And that means weight training. And I'm not talking about five and 10 pound light weights. I'm talking about moving heavy stuff right? So we lose muscle mass because one of the things that both of these drugs do is we don't feel very comfortable in the stomach. Proteins are the ones that everybody doesn't want is you don't feel like eating protein and protein is required. We have to eat it, right? So if you're not getting enough, your body's going to consume your own protein, which is your muscle. Um, in the first study, it was called a step one study. They had patients do a DEXA body composition before and after taking the medication. They found that a good chunk of that weight loss was actually muscle loss. The patients lost more than an average of 34 pounds in total for the entire length of the study, right? So pretty good weight loss. Let's face it, that's a pretty good number. However, in, it was 25.6 pounds of lean muscle mass and only eight pounds of fat. Okay, that sucks. That sucks. That means that they lost what would take probably two years to put back on if you're 50, if you aren't, unless you're lifting heavy, right? Like my mom is has been in the hospital off and on since April, and right now she's broke some bones. She's she's in a hospital bed, and we're doing everything we can because she's losing muscle mass just because she can't get up and stand up, right? Get up, stand up, walk. Imagine that you just lost 25 out of 34 pounds of muscle mass. That's huge. That's also going to result in bone loss, right? If I lose muscle mass, I'm going to lose bone too, right? So we have to worry about osteoporosis in women and men as we age, but particularly women. Um, that's a huge risk, and particularly once we're postmenopausal and we don't have hormones. Um, and so this is pretty big. And the thing that I was really adamant about when I was talking to Amy was that, you know, these drugs also show weight regain, you know, after after one year, by, by the time you go one year after discontinuing use, the majority of people had weight gain, right? And in fact, participants um, regained two-thirds of their prior weight loss. And this is people that lost significant amount of weight, right? So those who had the most to lose and lost the most had gained at least two-thirds of it back after discontinuing the drug, 
What was more insidious is is the ones that ha- only had a smaller amount to lose, like 20 pounds, had a greater weight increase in a shorter period of time. So the people that used it to lose 20 pounds gained it back and lost muscle at the same time, which means that we are we are basically becoming under lean, right? So if I lose 34 pounds, but most of it is muscle mass and I gain 10 of it back, I am now fatter percentage of body composition than I was before if I just held on to the muscle and had the extra body weight. And I think that's really important because we're not just looking at what we look like in a bathing suit. We're actually looking at at um, how the how the body operates and whether we are protected against injury again the more muscle mass you have you're protected against injury you're protected against all cause mortality all cause mortality as you age um so i i I do think these drugs can play a role like if somebody has 60 pounds to lose and they've been doing everything and maybe they're you know they're considering a a weight loss surgery which we just lost lisa marie presley to a you know, a complication from those, those are serious. They cause significant nutritional deficiencies for the rest of your life if you aren't really working hard at it. They are not the panacea and these drugs may work. But the reality is, is these peptide drugs are intended for long-term use. They're intended to be drugs that diabetics stay on. They're not something you throw in for a couple months so you can get bikini ready before summer and then just drop out because what you're doing is probably losing muscle every time you do it. And that's super concerning. One of the other things that has come out recently, because these drugs are very easy to get, they're easy to get online with no real medical oversight. Yes, somebody's reviewing your your um, intake, but in many cases online, people are buying it without actually having a significant medical visit with somebody who's assessing their entire health. Because again, these drugs are expensive and people are making quite a bit of money on them. But they... Um, the European um, health organizations are starting to look at these drugs because of reports of suicidal ideation, right? So that we're seeing that maybe there are changes in mood and emotion um, in people taking these drugs. What's interesting is they've been talking about these drugs in obesity-induced, or actually, let me rephrase that, uh, drug-induced obesia to antipsychotic medications. So let me say that in real English. Several of the antipsychotic medications that are used to treat things like schizophrenia have a very negative side effect in that they cause weight gain and obesity, and you know, which is very disturbing. So you take somebody whose mental health is is not well, and then you give them a drug that may or may not be helpful, right? But in some cases, yes. But then it results in all of these metabolic and hormonal changes that causes extraordinary weight gain, right? And so it's a catch twenty two because then that's in itself going to cause you know issues, right? And so when we look at some of those studies. Um, these drugs actually show that they may help, right? Because you basically have a drug causing weight gain and now a drug that you might be able to use to treat it and that that it seems to be at least in the early stages as somewhat favorable. There's still a long way, I think, to go with that. But in common everyday users, there are reports of suicidal ideation. Now, what is the cause of that? We don't know, which means that, you know, the European uh, medical authority, authorities are starting to do an inquiry. The FDA has not. Um, so these drugs are not benign they could potentially have issues. Um, One of the things that I think is probably being affected is most of your neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine um, are made in the gut, metabolized in the gut, 
And there's probably an interaction effect between this drug and those things. And that may be in some people and particularly depending probably on the microbiome and their enzymes and everything else, we may have alterations in those individuals that they see a different um, mental health outlook because of these medications. That just remains to be elucidated. We have to do some more studies on that. And so it's, it is problematic in that we, we don't have long-term studies on these used for weight loss right? Not long, long-term studies, and especially not the wild, wild west for the 10-pound weight loss, you know, for the next two months while you're trying to get beach ready. The other thing that I think is really important is we have to look at when you do things hormonally that radically change these hunger hormones like glucagon and ghrelin, um, what we often see is patterns of eating that is now what we would call disordered, Right, disordered eating is is eating abnormally, abnormally, and and it may not necessarily always become disordered eating, which is a which is a clinical term for things like anorexia, bulimia, orthorexia, which are disorders of eating where you're excluding food completely, like anorexia, you're not eating enough, or bulimia where you eat and throw up. Um, and binge, binge eating disorder, all of those. So, but because people have nausea and early gastric fullness, they tend to eat very um, abnormally and not very regimented on these drugs, and especially not eating enough protein. And that in itself may lead to more disordered eating later on, meaning that you get in the habit of eating those kind of foods and become a little nervous of foods that would normally be helpful for your metabolism, helpful for your body. So there is some concern about that as well. So so kind of the take-home message for all this stuff is these drugs have their place and they do what they do, but they are designed to be something that people put in the body, and and but they are also something that can't just be done haphazardly. And there is some variability in how these drugs may be, may be um, metabolized because of variability in that DPP-4 enzyme. And, and, and you know, we, we don't really know that yet, but there is a, even a couple studies going, hey, if we're using these DPP-4 drugs in somebody who's celiac who always had already had altered enzyme activity, are there concerns? Right? We, that hasn't been dug into enough, if you ask me. And if you are looking at using them, you need to make considerable effort to make sure you lift heavy stuff and eat adequate protein, and that is not easy to do. And expect that once you get to a therapeutic dose that causes weight loss is that there's a high probability that you may have some digestive symptoms or at least a lack of desire to eat, which is not always fabulous because you need to make sure that you're getting enough to eat and particularly enough protein. And if you do take these drugs and you find that um, your mental health feels changed, it, it, it warrants a conversation with your prescriber to make sure that there's not something going on that may be more insidious. Uh, again, you know, we're just starting to see this in the literature. And, and like I said, I'm not necessarily against this in all cases. I just am concerned with people doing it as this quick fix, right? It's not really designed to be a quick fix. It's really designed to, to fix a underlying metabolic problem. And then last but not least, you know, the other thing you need to understand is your microbiome, particularly acromancia, uh, mucinophilia, bacteria, and several other bacteria, actually help GLP-1. They produce GLP-1. So maybe part of the reason why we see an increase in diabetes and obesity and why these drugs work is because our diet 
our antibiotic use and the factory foods and all that other junk in our diet and the change in our microbiome compared to our ancestors and loss of keystone groups like acromancia may be why we are gaining weight to begin with, right? So getting the right probiotics, Pendulum Life is actually the one of them, the only maker of Acromancia mucinophilia probiotics. And I'll put that in the show notes. So people, if you're interested in looking at that and potentially trying that, if your Acromancia are low, taking it may actually help, right? It may actually help GLP-1 because that research was looked at even both in diabetes um, and then also in obesity, right? So your microbiome are major stimulants of GLP-1, right? So our gut plays a role. Things like berberine help us help us reduce glucagon production, right? So if I take berberine several times a day, up to 1,500 milligrams in divided doses, I may see an improvement because I may see a reduction in glucagon. So there are natural things that we can use that maybe aren't quite as powerful as the drug, but also aren't quite as disruptive either. And they probably cost you a lot less. So I hope you found this interesting. I hope this answered a few more of your questions. I did a little deeper dive on some of my concerns and also some of the, just the function of these drugs. And so I hope this was good for you. I thank you for listening to Menopause Mastery. You're the reason why I do this show. I love it. And I, I'm so happy that you listen. If this was meaningful to you in any way, please leave me a review. If you love the show and you have a question, leave that too, because I do answer the questions if I can. And thank you. Have a great week. And I'll be back next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Menopause Mastery Podcast. You are why I'm here, and I am so very grateful. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode has helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love, and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD, and you can reach me online at BettyMurray.com. Oh,